morning, church family. Can you please remain standing for the reading of God's word? Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. Because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of one another. Be angry and do... Yeah, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give not opportunity to the devil. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. So I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to pick up where we left off a few weeks ago. Um, grateful to, to Tony for uh, filling in the pulpit the last two weeks and, and leading us in God's word. But now we return to the book of Ephesians. And I had the scripture read uh, all the way back in verse 17. Today we're actually going to be looking at verses 25 through 27. But I want us to get kind of a running start into these verses because uh, it's been a little while since we were in this section. And to remind you, where we were at in Ephesians was this. God in his word had been using the Apostle Paul to communicate to the church in Ephesus these deep, and rich theological truths in chapters one, two, and three about who we are because of what God has done for us. Fire by grace, you have been saved through faith and this now of your own doing, it's a gift of God. He talked about being brought from darkness into life. We are a people that if we're in Jesus Christ have experienced this significant transformation. So coming into verse 17, we learned this. Paul comes as based upon all of these things now there's a way of living in the world that reflects your new life in Christ and a way of living that does not. Starting in chapter four, things begin to turn. Paul gives very practical consideration to what it means to be new in Jesus Christ. He says, if this has happened to you, this then is how your life should live. And so very clearly, he says, listen, you used to walk as the Gentiles do, but you don't any longer. And then the rest of chapter four and into chapter five and chapter six is gonna be this extrapolation, this expansion of what it actually looks like to live as God's people. And so if I were to summarize verses 17 through 24, it would be this. Because we have experienced Jesus Christ, we have spiritually alive hearts our minds are renewed and therefore our behavior can be and should look different than how we used to live. That's really at the heart of the message here. You and I in Christ have been transformed. We're spiritually alive now, no longer dead. Our minds have been renewed. And so we have put off the old. We have put on the new. And so our attitude, our actions and behavior both can be and should be different than how we once lived. So in the coming verses, Paul's gonna show us what it looks like to put our changed lives on display. 
These verses are all about putting our changed lives on display. And so what we're going to do over the next three weeks leading up to Palm Sunday and then Easter, because we're going to take a little break for Palm Sunday and Easter, is we're going to walk through verses 25 through 32, and we're just going to look at all these practical ways in which your life and my life are transformed and impacted by the gospel. And I want to give you an encouraging word, something that the Lord really encouraged my heart with today. As we walk through these verses, there are going to be really practical instructions, exhortations to us. But here's where there's so much hope. Here's where the encouragement is. I want you to know, God does not give to us these encouragements, these exhortations, and these instructions so that we might become his people. Remember, the context of this is all the instruction that's given here is given to believers. And so what he's instructing us to be and to do is what he's already, by his grace, enabled us to be and to do. Praise God for that. Amen? And so so we have great hope as we hear this to say, oh my, oh my, like this is actually who I am. I can be this kind of person. This is why I'm spiritually alive. This is why I've been renewed because I can actually live this way. And so here's the other part of the hope. If as we go through these instructions, you see, man, you know what? There's an area here that I'm really not living in. There's an area that I'm really not displaying. I'm struggling. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. Because if you identify one of those areas, know that through the Holy Spirit, with the help of Christ, you can and are enabled to see transformation in in that area of your life. And, and so I'm just so hopeful for us that these instructions that we receive, they're meant to be a blessing to us and to encourage us. And the reason I say that is this, Ephesians 2.10 is a powerful scripture. Before he says what he says here, we have Ephesians 2.10, which says this, for we are his workmanship. Who are his workmanship? Well, the people that he referred to in the previous verse, those who have been saved by grace, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what, church? Good works. For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Isn't that awesome? He already knows that you have what you need to live out what he's calling you to do. He's prepared those good works for you. And so when we demonstrate these things, who gets the glory? He gets the glory. Who gets the good? We all get the good. So are you ready to learn? Are you ready to grow? We're going to see how far we get. All right, let's go. We're going to get to it. We're going to pick it up in verse 25. Therefore, Paul says, and whenever you see the therefore, it's connecting us to the thought right before it. What was the thought right before it? It's that we have put on the new self. Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let us, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. What God's word does here is it comes and it says that the, the first demonstration of displaying our, our new lives in Christ, something that we should see is that truthfulness is in our speech. We're a truthful people. And notice that this verse actually doesn't start with a command. It doesn't start with an imperative. It actually starts with a statement of fact. What's the statement of fact, church family? It's that we have put away what? Falsehood. 
We have put away falsehood. What's uh, another word for falsehood? What's a more common way? Lies, right? Lying, deceit. He says that we have put that away and therefore let us, what? Speak the truth with his neighbor. So the statement of fact is that we've put away falsehood. When the old self had died, what died with it was our speaking falsely. It's not part of our new selves. It has no place. I'm going to be really transparent with you. No judgment on me here for what I'm about to say. But this weekend, in the garage, I did something. I finally put up in the attic all the Christmas decorations. Okay, no judgment. All right, it's March, whatever. Uh, We had moved it from the house into the boxes in the garage, but they were still in the garage, not put away in the attic. And so I finally put those things away. When God's word comes and says that we have put away all falsehood, what he's talking about is there is this stuff in your life, i.e. not speaking the truth, that's no longer a part of that. It's something that needs to be put away. It doesn't have a place where it currently is. So you have put that away. You didn't wait till March, whatever, to put away falsehood. It was put away from you when you came to Christ. You become someone who speaks the truth. And so as we come to this verse, I think it's just so important to say this is not who we are anymore. It is part of our past, but it is no longer a part of our present or our future. Instead, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. When we take these two statements together, putting our changed lives on display means we speak truthfully and refrain from lying. That's what it looks like to put our new life on display. The first thing he says is that we speak truthfully and we refrain from lying, falsehood, deceit, however you want to couch it, we do anymore. We are people who speak the truth. Now, out of all the behaviors, actions that God's word could have started with to indicate what it looks like to have our new lives in Jesus, does it surprise you that the very first thing he talks about is you are no longer those who lie, but you're those who speak the truth. Like it has always stood out to me that this was the first thing that jumped out in Paul's list. And while this list isn't exhaustive, it's pretty thorough. But why does he point to the fact that we're no longer those who are given to lying, but speaking the truth? See, if I were to go around this room, even in the first hour, and I were to ask people if they think that they are liars or that they struggle with lying, most people, well, at least when you become an adult, you don't feel like you struggle with lying. When you talk to little kids, they're a little bit more honest. Why do you think kids are more ready to acknowledge that sometimes they struggle with telling the truth, but adults don't say that they struggle with telling the truth? (laughs) Come on, the answer is pretty obvious. We justify it better. (laughs) In fact, think about all the ways that we lie. See, I think the very first reason why Paul says that we are people who speak the truth and don't lie is because lying is far more prevalent in our lives than we realize. Lying is far more prevalent in our lives than we realize. When you really break down how easy it is, church, to communicate a lie. You fill out a job application and maybe you add little untruths here and there about your previous employment. You, you, you pad the resume, if you will. We exaggerate our past accomplishments. We tell a story and we embellish certain facts or we put words in people's mouths to, to help better elevate our 
ourselves. We, in our business, try and sell something to somebody and make claims about its efficiency or effectiveness or quality that we know aren't exactly true. But church, a half-truth is a what? That's a whole lie, right? There was this uh, storekeeper one time who was listening to one of their clerks, one of their employees talking with a customer, and, and what the owner overheard their employee say was this. He said this to the customer, no, ma'am, we haven't had any of that for a while, and it doesn't look as if we'll be getting any, any time soon. The owner immediately went over to where the conversation was taking place, looked at the woman that the employee was talking to and said, oh, uh, uh, pardon me, ma'am, pardon me, ma'am. You know, um, don't worry, we have that on order. We should be getting it any day now. And then the lady looked at him and kind of walked away. And the owner went to the clerk and the employee and said, listen, listen, whenever somebody asks you if we have something, always tell them that it's on order, that we're going to get it because we don't want to lose their business. We want them to come back. Now, what was it that she was asking about? And he said, rain. What what did the person done, right? They they were asking a question about rain. The the manager went back, twisted it, and said, no, tell them that we have it on order. You don't have rain on order. And he was caught in a bold-faced lie. But here's one of the ways that I think we find deception in our own lives, especially if you have children or family members or just teach kids or work with kids. We bluff to get children's compliance all the time. We lie, right? We say, if you don't eat that, you're not going to get to watch TV for two more years. (laughs) You know? You know, there's going to be no Christmas for you if you don't clean up your room. And it's like July, right? You know? When we were on the plane to Israel, there was this dear blessed family that had like four kids under the age of two. I don't know how that's possible, uh, but they, they had all these, these young kids. And, and I, look, it's hard traveling on an international flight with, with kids, but you know, Pastor Paul and I were, were smiling about this. You know, we heard more empty threats from those parents towards those kids. <laughs> We are going to leave you on this plane if you don't stop. And I'm like, please, Lord, no, take them from the plane. I don't, the, the, the best one was like, if you don't stop hitting your brother, you are not going to get any more food for the rest of this flight. And that was like, we still had seven hours left. I'm like, no parent is going to, like, they couldn't live up to it. Have you ever done something like that? Any empty threats? No, oh, liars. So there you go. You know, there's all these ways in which we distort the truth. We exaggerate things. Like, listen, hyperbole isn't lying, you know? Like, there's times where you might come and you might, you know, say something like, oh, this suitcase, it weighs a ton, right? You're you're just, it's hyperbole. But you know what's one of the sad ways in which we work in line all the time and, and it's really destructive? I see this with couples sometimes, especially in counseling. It's when we say things like this about our spouse. You never do anything good for me. You always put me down. You never help with the kids. You always complain. You're always so ungrateful. Always. Never. You know, we we add those little things to statements. And at the end of the day, they're lies, right? So it makes a lot of sense to me when at the end of the day, 
the very first thing that changes about us is that we put all that aside. Because when you think about it, lies are ultimately destructive. Paul says that they're destructive. When you look at it in the text, he comes and he says, you should not lie to one another. You put away all falsehood because we are members of what? One another. He uses his favorite illustration, that body imagery. And he says, don't you see, like we are members of one another, just as a hand is connected to the body and eye and so forth. Like we are so connected that when you lie, think about what lying does. It's not a victimless crime. It's not a victimless activity. By using the body analogy, it's really profound to me what Paul is getting at here. Think about this. I was yesterday building a, a fire inside the, the house in a fireplace, okay? Not like just lighting the house on fire because it refuses to be warm in California. And so I'm building the fire and imagine if my eyes communicated to my hands, oh, that's not hot. Or if the nerve endings said to my skin, that's not hot, what would happen to that part of my body? It would be what? Burnt. It would be harmed. So lying ultimately is something that is harmful to, to us. That, that's why I'm, I'm gonna jump down here a little bit. If, if you look in the no, notes, I think one of the things that we know about lying is very simply this. Falsehood stifles unity, truth strengthens unity. Falsehood stifles unity, truth strengthens unity. I'm gonna come back up to another point in just a minute, but if you're taking notes, I want us to see that. When we speak falsely with one another, it, it, it stifles the unity that we have. It's harmful to us and it's harmful to the other person. And, and so at minimum, Paul is saying, this is not who you are because don't you know that you're members of one another? You've been brought into something. You've been brought into God's family. And it makes sense all the more why we put on display truthfulness and it's not just because falsehood stifles unity, it's because our Father, who's adopted us into his family, our God is truth and light. Can I get an amen to that? That's who he is. And so when we are made his sons and daughters, that's the identity, that's the character traits that then we put on display. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Darkness conceals, light what? Reveals. And, and we have been those in which the light of Christ has shone upon us, and so why do we keep things in it? Why do we try and conceal? Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's life in truth, there's death in deceit, there's death in lying. Jesus says, I'm the truth. And it's not just that he's the source of the truth, of all truth, he is that, but he brings life through his truth. And, and it's no surprise to me that when you go all the way back into the Old Testament, 
Zechariah 8, 16 through 17, when God is talking to his people back then, and he's talking to his people about what it looks like to live as his people back then, in Zechariah 8, 16, it says this, these are the things you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgment that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Paul's actually quoting and reframing what God said through the prophet Zechariah. We are people who speak truth. It's a mark of who we are. Have you ever wondered why ultimately we lie? Like what's at the source of it? It was really interesting to me. It was years ago, uh, probably about five or so, that National Geographic, secular magazine, put together this very large article on lying. They wanted to investigate it, why we lie. And they came up with something that was really stunning to me, but it shouldn't surprise us as the people of God. They, they broke down the percentages based upon the studies that they did of why people lie. And at the end of the day, what they discovered is after you take out, you know, <laughs> what they called, you know, uh, kind lies, like, you know, telling grandma that she really looks good in that hat when you don't think she does, you know, and, and you know, joking lies and things like that. What they said is this, and this isn't, you know, perfect, but they said the majority, 75% of the reasons why we lie are to protect ourselves or to gain something not our own. Why do we lie? Because we believe that if we told the truth, it would leave us exposed. If we told the truth, we wouldn't get what we want. And so what happens here? That's exactly what Paul said previously. When you are not in Jesus Christ, it's your desires that rule you. And, and so if you feel like you need to do something in order to protect yourself, you're going to do it regardless of what God says. And if you feel like you want something and there's only one way in your mind to get it and it's against what God says, you're going to go after it. But it says for us, that's not who we are. And so because our God is truth and light, because we understand that our falsehood it creates disunity and the truth brings about unity, then we are people who speak the truth. And as he goes on to say in the passage, or as he said previously in verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. We're people who speak the truth. You and I don't need to use falsehood and deceit to protect ourselves. You and I don't need to get things through deceit and lying if it's not God's way because that's no longer who we are. One of the encouragements that I would give us today is this. Praise God that because of what Christ has done, we are able to walk in the light and not succumb to the big and little lies that otherwise would dominate our lives. Another survey said that the average American lies four times a day. <laughs> When we're in Jesus Christ, we don't need to. It's not part of, of who we are. My encouragement to you is to say, praise God that we can cast off lying. And maybe for you today, this message is simply a message to say, is this an area of my life that I've let kind of, kind of creep in? Am I somebody who's more prone to conceal rather than to speak honestly? Lord, examine my heart in these ways because you have been freed. That's, Lying is like going back up into the attic 
and taking down all those boxes just for the sake of putting them back in the garage again. It's exhausting when you actually think about it. You want to know how kind God is? They did a medical evaluation of people when they were telling a lie versus when they weren't. They did brain scans, MRIs. When you lie, you have to use seven different parts of your brain. When you tell the truth, you only have to use four. <laughs> Do you see how freeing that is? It takes far less energy to those who speak the truth. That's God's kindness to us. But it's not just that we are those who speak the truth. It's not just that that's what we put on display. This next one is so powerful. Look with me at verses 26 and 27. He says, not only are we truth tellers, that's not the only thing that we put on display, but he says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. This is one of those passages that needs some definite explaining. It's a passage that is often misunderstood and misused. And so I want you to process it through it with me. It starts with an imperative, which in that tense or in that mood, I should say, in the imperative is typically a command. So think about the very first thing that this passage says is be angry. Have you ever considered that? The Bible, is it commanding us to be angry? Wonderful. I'm a new creation in Jesus Christ. Part of displaying my new life in Jesus is that I'm angry all the time. Is that what the passage is saying? Well, fortunately for us, we know that's not what the passage is commanding us to do because that first imperative is followed up by three more imperatives. Each one is intended to both modify and create a boundary for the very first imperative. Because God's word is not telling you, be an angry person, act out in anger. Instead, look at the three imperatives that come right after this. Be angry and do not, what? Sin. And then it says, and do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So what's happening here? Be angry, but then we're told these three other things. How does it all ultimately work together? Well, the first thing that we should know right off the bat is this. To be angry, I should be more specific, to feel anger is not a sin. Did you know that? The reason why we know it's not a sin is because the very next command says, be angry, but what? Do not sin. What's happening here? God's word is so down to earth, it's so realistic. It's telling us first and foremost, in the world, you and I, whether you're a follower of Jesus Christ or not, will experience events, circumstances, situations that will create feelings of anger, emotions of anger inside of you. Anger is a very real emotion. It's unavoidable in this world. But anger and feeling angry over something in and of itself is not a sin. Instead, here's what we know. Anger, like other emotions, and this is so important for us to understand, God created us to feel things. He created us to feel things, but the things we feel and the emotions that it creates in us, it's like all those lights in an airplane or in a car that are indicating to you something is happening to you. An airplane has all of these emergency lights and devices to let you know 
Something is happening. And when some of those lights go off, it means that something good is happening. When some of those lights go off, something bad is happening. It's a person's responsibility to understand what do those signals ultimately mean. So feeling anger, feeling joy, happiness, sadness, these things, it's part of living in this world. The question is, what do we do with those emotions and feelings? And that's at the heart of this verse. You see, if you wanna know the message that's being communicated to us here, putting on the new self, displaying our new life in Christ, it means we have emotions and we have feelings, but are not controlled by them. That's the message that is being given here. You will feel things, you will have emotions, and that's okay, but we're not controlled by them. We don't act out of our emotions. That's why there's all these qualifying things. You're gonna feel angry, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger because you don't wanna give the, the devil an opportunity, a foothold. In fact, just to show you this, look down at verse 31. To prove to you that this is the point of this verse, in verse 31 it says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. That word for anger is the same word for anger in our verse, but it's supposed to be put away from us. So what's being said? It's being said to us that we don't act out of anger. We don't respond to people in our anger. If you feel angry, you're not sinning, but if you act out of your anger, you've entered into sin. This is not a passage about righteous anger and unrighteous anger. I didn't say this the first hour, but I got a little bit more time here, so let me say this. I'll probably say it to the first hour next week. A lot of people say, look at Jesus in the temple, and he overturns the tables, and he gets angry, and he overturns the table of the money changers. Number one, it doesn't say that he was angry. So you got to think about that in context. Number two, it's God's house. And as we will see in the book of James, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And, and so don't be looking at this passage and saying, We're, I'm trying, I want to ever justify my anger. The clear teaching of this passage is you can feel angry, but do not sin. You can't act out of anger and call it righteousness. Because righteousness is the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. See, we're a people who, being transformed by Jesus Christ, feel anger, and we experience intense emotions, but we're people who do not act out of those emotions. Abraham Lincoln had a secretary of war at the time. His name was Edwin Stanton. And Stanton had a general that he was communicating with, and the general defied a blatant order given to him by Stanton. And when he found out that, that the general had disobeyed his order, he was angry, and he came to, to Lincoln, and he complained about it. He was so upset that this man had gone against his command. It, and in one sense... The man, the general, should have done what he was supposed to do. By not doing so, he had gone against his superior. 
And so Lincoln said, what are you going to do? And he's like, well, I'm going to write a letter. So Stanton sat down there in Lincoln's thing, and he wrote a letter to, to the general. And Lincoln said, so what are you going to do with the letter? He says, well, I'm going to mail it to him. He said, oh, can I see it first? And he said, sure. And so he gave it to Lincoln. Lincoln picked it up, walked over to the fire, and threw it in the fire. <laughs> he said, what are you doing? Now Stanton was angry at two people. No, he said, he said what was that for? And he said, he's like, well, now you've been able to express your, your anger, but rewrite that letter this time. Write it a second time. What did Lincoln know? Well, it's actually what this passage says. Hey, listen, this guy was right to feel angry, but the first letter that he wrote was out of his anger. He knew that the second letter that he would write would not be driven by it. And so God's word is coming to us and it's saying, look it, be angry and do not sin. And then it gives us some amazingly practical advice. And do not let the sun go down on your what? Anger. That's what lets us know that we are supposed to be a people who can feel these intense emotions because someone, I mean, why do we feel angry? Someone has hurt us. We've experienced loss of some kind caused by someone else. Someone has swindled us. Someone has robbed us. Somebody has lied about us. Somebody has gossiped about us. Somebody has cheated us. And so we experience hurt and we experience loss. And so we have these feelings of, of anger. But then the text says, but do not let the sun go down in your anger. What's it telling us to do? It's telling us that we're a people who now, because of the Holy Spirit, we deal with our anger. We address it. And I want to just give you five things here in closing really quick that, that really put this all into focus. The imperative here to not let the sun go down on our anger is a call to deal with the anger. And I think the first way we do it is call your emotion for what it is. We call our emotion for what it is. God, by saying to us, be angry and do not sin, is saying, don't suppress emotion. The Bible doesn't tell you to not feel things. Sometimes in the church, sometimes in Christianity, we can confuse having feelings about something, emotions about something versus the sinful action of acting out of it. And so we can squelch people. And so here's the most obvious one. I got a phone call from somebody recently and a loved one of theirs had passed away and they were experiencing sadness over the loss. Now on the phone, should I tell them, oh, they passed away, don't be sad. <laughs> you can't tell someone who's experienced loss, well, don't feel sad. No, because there's a loss that's there. It's what you do with that loss. And the first thing we have to do is we have to acknowledge the emotion. We have to call it for what it is. There's nothing wrong in saying, I feel angry right now. I have feelings of anger. But then secondly, what we have to do is when we feel it, we have to identify why are you feeling angry? I'm feeling angry. The next question you need to ask your heart and mind is why? What's causing this anger? Who has hurt me? What has hurt me? What have I lost that I had wanted? Well, my child broke this thing. My wife or my spouse did this thing. My coworker treated me in this way. Can you identify the source or the cause of your anger? Why do we do that? Well, we do that because it's not until we identify why we're feeling angry that we can do the next thing, which is tell yourself, I need to deal with this anger. Most people are really good about acknowledging that they feel angry and why they're angry. But rather than doing this next thing, which is dealing with it, 
in addressing it with the help of the Lord, we do the next step in our flesh, we act out of anger. I feel angry, you did this, and so therefore, boom. And so we react in anger. But because of our new life in Christ, our anger in addressing it, there's another step to be taken. We say to ourselves, I need to deal with this because look at verse 27, and give no opportunity to the devil, undealt with anger. Not calling it for what it is, identifying the source, and then telling yourself, I need to deal with this, leaves you and I open to actions of sin. That's why so many people ultimately act out of anger. That's why Paul says, you don't. We're not a people who act out of anger. We're not people who act out of or are controlled by our emotions. Because as he made the point earlier, listen, the unbelievers controlled by their desires, they don't have the ability to, to deal with their anger. James 1, 19 through 20 says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For as I said earlier, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. When you feel anger, and this also applies to loss and many other emotions, even joy, even happiness. I mean, sometimes we can feel happy and we can experience joy for the wrong reasons. Do we uh, say, I need to deal with this. I, I need to know if, if how I'm feeling here, if, if I'm handling it in the right way. Because the fourth thing that we're called to do is to take it to the Lord. We take our anger, we take our emotions to the Lord. We acknowledge that we need to deal with, but then we take it to the Lord. There's this beautiful psalm, and actually there's many psalms that communicate this. Psalm 10, where we see the psalmist crying out to God in, in, in anger and frustration, bringing the hurt, bringing the pain of their situation to God. And it's not a woe is me, it's a I'm really upset here. I'm angry because of the wickedness that's all around me. And we take it to the Lord because when we take it to the Lord, you know what we're not doing? We're not taking it out on the other people. We're not acting out of our anger. We're taking it to the one who ultimately can address it in our heart and mind and do something about it. We often stop short of this. I feel angry. So-and-so did this. I need to deal with it, but here's how Dave's going to deal with it. You know, I didn't tell the first hour because, you know, I wanted to look holy in their eyes, but, you know. I mean, I've told the story when I used to play ice hockey. I've been in two fights in my entire life, you know, and both of them were in ice hockey. And I'll tell you, I did not, well, I, I felt angry. Yep, that, that's about, I acknowledged I was angry. I uh, identified why I was angry. The person had hurt my brother. And then uh, how did I deal with my anger? I took it out on the other person. In that moment, it doesn't justify that anger. Instead, we take the anger to the Lord. And then the fifth thing happens. Now, I'm going to close with this, but you got to just give me your attention while I do it. Because this is the most important of all. You see, Romans 12, 19 through 21 says this. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Church family, 
the biggest reason why we can take our anger to God and not give into our anger and act out of our anger is because we know this, and this is that final point. Remind yourself that every hurt and loss that is the source of your anger is temporary and will be replaced with something far greater. We feel anger because we have been hurt and we are hurt because someone has damaged us in some way, emotionally, spiritually, physically, or because someone has taken something from us. But did you hear Romans 12? Did you hear this passage? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. And we often read that passage and we think, oh yeah, God's gonna give them what they deserve. But to repay someone, you see, when someone has hurt you or caused you loss, who's experienced the hurt? Who's experienced the loss? You have. But don't you see what the promise of God's word is? It's not just that the person who did it is gonna get what they quote unquote deserve, it's that you will be repaid. Do you not know and do I not know that any hurt, any loss we experience on this earth God will make up and has promised to make up and has already begun making up for you and for me. You can take nothing from me and I can take nothing from you that God will not repay fourfold, tenfold, a thousand times fold with his presence and with his goodness for all eternity. So why should I act out of my hurt and my frustration towards you? What can you possibly ever repay me that Christ has not already secured for me through the cross and his pain? Amen. This frees us from being people who are controlled by anger. We can take it to him. And when we identify it and when we deal with it, we preach to our hearts the gospel that yes, I hurt, yes, I'm experiencing loss and pain, but praise be to God, he repays. He repays. And because of that great confidence, I will not be overcome by evil, but will overcome evil with what? Good. Praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we come before a God who, if your word is true, and it is, is a God who is faithful and just and who takes us and provides for us all that we need so we lack nothing. And because we lack nothing and because we have the confidence assurance of the life to come, that in the present, when our feelings and emotions seem so strong and seem like the right and only way to act out is in our emotions. You come to us with that word that says, I have this. You do not need to go your own way, but walk in my way because I've freed you. I've given you a new life. And so Lord, help us to be a people who embrace what it is that you have given and who are continually talking to ourselves so we don't give on to our emotions. There were people who believe that we are in the light so we have nothing that we need to conceal. Even if we believe it might bring us harm, even if we believe it might change what people think of us, ultimately at the end of the day, Lord, we walk in the light because you are in the light. And so, Lord, thank you that there's a new way to live in this world because of Jesus. And we can put it on display for your glory and we receive the good. And all God's people said, amen and amen.